Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, May 18, 2010. This week, I'll discuss a post-year 15 study of low-income housing tax credit finance properties. On May 11th, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, announced that it will conduct a survey to collect data on low-income housing tax credit property owners' experiences with the LHTC program, and specifically about information that factored in to their post-year 15 property disposition decisions. Then, I'll review two renewable energy bills introduced last week in the Senate. Senate Bill 3336 would enable renewable energy development projects to qualify for private activity bond financing, that is, for tax-exempt bond financing. And Senate Bill 3338, which would provide an investment tax credit for advanced biofuel production property. And finally, I'll share some highlights from a report produced recently by the Congressional Research Service. The CRS report reviews the historical perspective and current status of federal energy tax policy. And next week on the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast, I'll give you an update as to where we stand with extenders legislation. Now, before I get into the topics I want to discuss this week, first I have some breaking news about the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program. As many of our listeners most certainly already know, last week the Department of Housing and Urban Development released income limits for 2010. These are the much-awaited income limit release. Under the Housing and Income Recovery Act of 2008, or HERA, income limits for projects funded with Low Income Housing Tax Credits and Projects financed with tax and housing bonds. Now they're being referred to as multifamily tax subsidy projects, or MTSPs, are now calculated and presented separately from the general Section 8 income limits. Data and related materials for both sets of income limits have now been posted online at www.tashcredithousing.com. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. For the United States as a whole, the Area Median Gross Income, or AMGI, rose 0.6%. A sampling of changes at the state level reveals relatively low increases. AMGI, Area Median Gross Income, in California, statewide went up 0.8%. AMGI in Texas rose 2%. Florida's AMGI rose 1%. And there was no change statewide for Ohio's AMGI. Obviously, though, property-level rents and incomes are generally a function of the MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area, or non-metropolitan area in which the property is located. Novogratic and Company has prepared a full analysis of the very low income, or VLI, changes for all counties. Similar to the low increases seen at the state level, there were also generally minimal increases across all counties. I also, though, remind our listeners that HUD now generally restricts increases and decreases to no more than a 5% change, as announced in its notice that ended the use of the hold harmless policy. HUD's briefing material says there are 23 areas that were capped at a 5% increase, and there are 31 areas that were capped at a 5% decrease. HUD announced on May 12th that it would stop using the hold harmless policy in estimating the Section 8 income limits. This change means that Section 8 income limits will now be allowed to decrease beginning with the fiscal year 2010 income limits. While they'll be allowed to decrease, all annual decreases are limited to the 5%, and increases are similarly limited generally to 5%. 
HUD solicited public comment last year on the proposal to discontinue its hold harmless policy. In the notice published formally in the May 17th Federal Register, HUD discusses the comments it received about the proposed policy change, including questions regarding how this policy change affects multifamily tax subsidy projects, MTSPs. The Novogratz Rent and Income Limit Calculator is being updated to include the 2010 Rent and Income Limit data. Subscribers to our free industry alert email service will receive an email announcement when the update has been completed. I also remind our listeners that Section 42 does continue to have a hold harmless provision. And now the income limits that are released for MTSP properties contain a special income amount for those properties that qualify under the hold harmless provision. Novogratz and Company is compiling a complete analysis and review of the new income limits, as well as the impact of the termination of the hold harmless policy for purposes of the Section 8 income limits. We're going to have a webinar that Jim Kroger, a partner in our San Francisco office, will present on Wednesday, May 26th. I encourage our listeners to this podcast to register for this webinar as there will be a very detailed description as to how the new income limits will affect tax credit properties throughout the nation. To learn more about the webinar and to register, I invite you to go to www.novaco.com events or send an email to cpas at novaco.com asking for information about the webinar. In the meantime, for questions about using the new 2010 income limits, I encourage you to call my partner, Jim Kroger, at 415-356-8000. Or you can visit www.novaco.com services to learn more about the broad range of property compliance services. The calculation of income and rent limits for low-income housing tax credit properties has never been more complicated and more technical than it is now. Now let's turn to our second low-income housing tax credit topic for this week's podcast. Last week, HUD issued a notice requesting comments on their proposed survey of low-income housing tax credit properties that have completed their 15-year compliance period. The notice was published in the May 11th Federal Register. HUD's Office of Policy Development and Research is planning to conduct a survey of expired LIHTC properties, that is, properties that have gotten to the end of their 15-year compliance period, albeit many of the properties will still be in their 30-year extended use commitment period. As of the end of 2009, HUD estimated there were 10,634 properties totaling 374,675 units that were placed in service 15 or more years ago. As such, they're at the end of their compliance period. In the next 10 years, furthermore, HUD estimates that another 114,000 or so low-income housing tax credit developments containing more than a million rental units will reach their 15-year mark and become eligible to leave the program depending upon state rules and other financing. HUD says that this proposed survey would provide information essential for the design of future affordable housing programs. The surveyors propose collecting information from three sources. Those three sources are housing finance agencies, syndicators, and property owners. The goal is for these three sources to answer all or most of the policy-relevant research questions about post-year 15 properties. The Federal Register notice invites comment on the proposed LHTC Property Owner Survey. 
The survey would be conducted in the fall of this year, fall of 2010, and it would collect data from 40 randomly selected property owners who received a single LHTC allocation between 1987 and 1994 and whose compliance period have expired. Three groups of properties are not expected to be part of the sample. The three not expected to be part of the sample are those that received an additional allocation of tax credits, such that they still have their compliance period running, Section 8 project-based assistance projects, or Section 515 assistance projects. These three types are not expected to be part of the 40 property owner sample. The property owner survey is expected to be about an hour long, and it's going to collect information about the owner's experiences with the program, as well as their disposition decisions. Data would be collected on whether properties were sold and whether or not they continued as affordable rental housing. The survey proposes four categories of questions. What happened with the property? Why did it happen? What was the result? And how did it happen? The survey is designed to gather information about properties that have stayed or left the program, including the number and property type and the owner's reasons for staying or leaving the program. The survey will also examine the performance level of properties that remained in the program and how properties that left the program have affected the rental market. Additionally, the survey will review the process for leaving the LIHTC program and whether restructuring, refinancing, and or selling the property affect whether or not the property is still being monitored by a state agency. Aft Associates, Inc. was contracted to conduct the survey, and it has proposed four possible methods for selecting the 40 LIHTC owners to be surveyed. Option one would be the syndicators would identify 40 properties for both owner and asset manager interviews. Option two was to have the syndicators identify 40 properties for owner interviews, and they would also identify additional properties for data collection from asset managers. For option three, the study team would identify 40 properties from the updated HUD LHCC database for owner interviews, and then have syndicators identify 40 properties for asset manager interviews. Or fourth, the syndicators could identify 20 to 30 properties for owner and asset manager interviews, and then the study team would identify 10 to 20 properties from uh, the property types that appear to be missing from the sample from the syndicators. Detailed information about the pros and cons of each option can be found on page 27 of the Research Design and Data Collection Plan that's on our website. Comments from the public and affected agencies are being accepted until July 12, 2010. Specific comments are requested as to, one, whether the study is necessary, two, if the estimate of the burden to collect information is accurate, three, if, the ways, if there are ways to enhance the quality, utility, and clarity of the information to be collected, and fourth, ways to minimize the overall burden of the information collected. The Federal Register Notice and the Research Design and Data Collection Plan can be found at www.hudresourcecenter.com. That's a website that is populated and maintained by Novogratz and Company. You can also go to www.tashgrathousing.com, another Novogratz site, and click on News, and in the News tab, select Hot Topics. From there, go to the Year 15 Hot Topic. We're maintaining a page dedicated to this HUD study as a subset of our Year 15 Hot Topic page. Let's switch gears now and turn to our renewable energy discussion. On May 11th, Senators Dianne Feinstein and Sherrod Brown introduced Senate Bill 3336, the Private Activity Renewable Energy Bonds Act. House of Representatives members 
Mike Thompson, Dean Heller, and Mary Bono Mack have sponsored companion legislation in the House. The bill would amend the Internal Revenue Code to provide access to low-interest, tax-exempt private activity bonds for clean energy businesses. These businesses would include projects that generate renewable energy, produce energy or water savings, or develop highly efficient vehicles. This would include projects such as wind and solar farms, solar panel factories, efficient vehicle manufacturing plants, and water recycling facilities. The bill allows these new categories of eligible uses for tax-exempt private activity bonds in conjunction with other federal tax incentives, such as renewable energy tax credits, hybrid vehicle tax credits, and energy efficiency tax deductions. Senate Bill 3336 caps the value of bonds at $2.5 billion annually. This is the amount that's been estimated to be needed to replace at least 1% of domestic electricity generation with renewable sources over the next 10 years. Also on May 11th, Senator Bill Nelson introduced Senate Bill 3338, the Advanced Biofuel Investment Act of 2010. The bill would provide an investment tax credit, or ITC, for advanced biofuel production property. Supporters of the bill say that the ITC is needed to jumpstart the advanced biofuel industry, which must meet new federal mandates for renewable fuels. The Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007 mandates the use of 21 billions of gallons of of advanced biofuels by the year 2022. Although the law requires the use of those renewable fuels beginning in 2010, there are no commercial biorefineries that are anticipated to be commissioned before 2011. Supporters of the Advanced Biofuel Investment Act of 2010 say that the commercialization of the advanced biofuels industry has been slowed by the extended downturn in the U.S. economy, limiting access to private capital that's needed for the development of commercial-scale biofuels projects. A consortium of advanced biofuel producers sent a letter to congressional leaders earlier this month urging the creation of a 30% investment tax credit for advanced commercial biorefineries. The letter says, quote, Just as Congress responded to the impact of this downturn on the renewable electricity industry by allowing a 30% investment tax credit in new facilities that can be monetized through a federal treasury grant program, we believe additional tax incentives are needed for advanced biofuel refineries. Close quote. In the letter that was addressed to congressional leaders from both parties, the companies also recommended that the ITC be technology neutral and be applied to facilities using renewable biomass that have life cycle greenhouse gas emissions that are at least 50% less than the established baseline for gasoline. Copies of Senate Bill 3336 and Senate Bill 3338 are available online at www.energytaxcredits.com. We'll be tracking their progress, and we'll update you on any developments in future podcasts. In the interim, feel free to contact my partner, Stephen Tracy, in our San Francisco office for additional information. One final topic on the renewable energy front is a report on energy tax policy that was produced by the Congressional Research Service. They produced a report that's a longitudinal perspective on energy tax policy and expenditures. The report examines how current revenue losses resulting from energy tax provisions compare to historical revenue losses. It provides a foundation for understanding how current energy tax policy has evolved. Further, the report compares the relative value of tax incentives given to fossil fuels, renewables, and energy efficiency. 
recent legislation has introduced, reintroduced, and expanded or extended a number of energy tax provisions. While a number of the current energy provisions have a long-standing in the tax code, a wider variety of tax incentives are available now than have been available in the past. The report says that examining trends in revenue losses associated with energy tax provisions provides insight into the actual direction of energy policy. It's interesting to note that in inflation-adjusted terms, revenue losses associated with energy tax provisions in the late 1970s and early 1980s are similar to the revenue losses in the late 2000s. However, the composition of these revenue losses has changed significantly. In the late 1970s, nearly all the revenue losses associated with energy tax provisions were the result of two tax preferences given to the oil and gas industry. In the early 1980s, revenue losses associated with special treatment for the oil and gas industry accounted for more than three-quarters of all federal revenue losses associated with energy tax expenditures. Changes in policy, coupled with declining oil prices in the late 1980s, dramatically reduced revenue losses associated with the oil and gas tax policy. Moving to the 1990s, throughout the 1990s, the bulk of revenue losses associated with energy tax provisions were attributable to the tax credit for non-conventional fuels. Moving to the 2000s, revenue losses associated with energy with renewable energy production incentives began to make up a larger proportion of energy tax expenditure revenue losses, reaching an estimated 21% in 2006. In the late 2000s, the majority of revenue losses have been associated with incentives designed to promote biofuels. Revenue losses associated with the tax credit for electricity produced from renewable resources also grew at a relatively rapid rate following 2005. The report notes that while they were first introduced under the Energy Tax Policy Act of 1992, revenue losses associated with the provisions were negligible until 2005. That's because in 2004, the American Jobs Creation Act expanded the list of technologies eligible for the credit. Furthermore, the eligibility of the additional technology, along with rising oil prices, combined with a greater interest in reducing the use of fossil fuels, were all factors that likely contributed to the additional claims of the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit. According to the Congressional Research Service, 23% of energy tax expenditures were attributable to the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit by the year 2006. Finally, Treasury grants in lieu of the Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit or Production Tax Credit enacted under Section 1603 of the Recovery Act are not directly included in the tax expenditure categories that I've reported on so far. However, CRS reports that in 2009, an estimated $1.05 billion was spent on grants in lieu of energy tax credits. Furthermore, as of April 2010, more than $3 billion has been awarded. And the President's fiscal year 2011 budget estimates that the grant program will result in outlays in excess of $15 billion dollars in the aggregate of the years 2009 through 2015. For additional data and more detailed discussion, I invite you to refer to the complete CRS report. It's entitled, Energy Tax Policy, Historical Perspectives on and Current Status of Energy Tax Expenditures. We have a link posted on our website to this report. Just go to www.energytaxcredits.com. Before we wrap up, I'd like to alert listeners to an opportunity to submit suggestions for the Internal Revenue Service's Guidance Priority List. 
and Notice 2010-43, the Department of Treasury and the IRS invited public comments and recommendations for items that should be included on the 2010-2011 guidance priority list. Taxpayers may submit recommendations for guidance at any time during the year. Recommendations submitted by June 30th will be reviewed for possible inclusion on the original 2010-2011 guidance priority list. Recommendations received after June 30th will be reviewed for inclusion in the next periodic update. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I'll give an update on the status of extenders and other tax legislation. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. (music) 